so encouraged by our Advent readers. Gives me great confidence in our education system. Those beautiful little voices able to read so eloquently. What a gift that is to us. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church, and um, it's such a, a joy to be able to be with you this morning. If you're a guest with us, um, I'd love an opportunity to say hello to you, just to meet with you, um, pray with you, and whatever it is that uh, you might need. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd love an opportunity just to engage with you after the service. I'll be right down front here. Um, but as we think about that Advent reading, and even I was reflecting on the, 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 one of the songs that we sang, um, and the goodness of God and his pursuit of us, um, and how that goodness has um, overflowed in our lives, um, that preparation that God made a way where there is no way. Um, I couldn't help, um, and you might have been like this as well, but I couldn't help as I was singing that song, um, I was reflecting on and remembering some times in my life where um, things weren't so great, things weren't good. Um, and we sing of the goodness of God, and yet I was just in my own heart thinking to myself, I, God is good, but there's times where I didn't feel that. I didn't see that in my experiences. The circumstances definitely did not look good. Um, when my parents uh, were separated and ultimately divorced, that, that wasn't good. It wasn't a good season for me. Um, a little later in my life, in my late teens and, and really early 20s, um, that wasn't a good season for me. It wasn't a good season with the Lord and my walk with the Lord. And um, just a few years ago when my mom passed away, that wasn't good. It wasn't a good season. As I think about that, and yet I can sing sincerely, his goodness and mercy has been pursuing me and overflows in my life. And what I'm saying, I'm not saying to God or to anyone here, just so you know, that everything is always good. No, what I'm saying is that God has sustained me and has been with me even in those hard seasons. And that's because of what we just celebrated, what we just heard read over us, is that Jesus came and prepared a way for us to have a relationship with God, a way where there is no way. And I share that with you just because I, I, I'm just mindful of the reality that as I look out on the room, I, I don't know all of your circumstances, but more than likely, just percentages, I've said this regularly in our church, the percentages would say that there are many of you or at least some of you in this room who are in a season or in a time in your life right now where you're like, things are not good. And what I want, I hope that our singing and um, this message and all that we do here might in some way remind you that God is still good. And look back on some of those seasons in your life like I can where I didn't see goodness, but I experienced the love of God. I experienced his tenderness. And ultimately, I'm still here. And I still proclaim Christ. That's a miracle of God's faithfulness to us. He is good. And he will see you through. And so if that's you and you're walking in one of those seasons where it feels bleak and dark, um, I hope that you heard uh, so well uh, what the Napoli family read for us, those words of hope that there is a way and that Jesus came to prepare that way for us. We've been, we began last week um, in a study in the book of 1 John. And so if you have your Bibles with you, um, I'd like to encourage you to open those up to 1 John. Go to the very near back of your Bible and uh, you'll find uh, John's letter um, to the church there. And we began last week looking at chapter 1. And ultimately, the summary of that uh, passage or the, the text that we read is this, 
if we confess our sins, if we acknowledge our sinfulness, that we have a Savior, Jesus, who came. John's testimony was that Jesus came and that he saw him and he heard him and he touched his flesh like he knew Jesus intimately. And that Savior that he knew came to forgive us of our sins. And that if we confess our sins to him, he is able and willing, not just able, but willing and ready to cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. What a hopeful message. If you missed last week and you want to catch back up, just go wherever you find a podcast. You can find last week's message um, and catch up with us. But that's essentially the theme there, um, and that is taken uh, from the end of chapter 1 in verse 9, where John says to us about this Jesus that he knew, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you're saying, if I look at my life, sort of examine my own heart, I search my heart, as the scriptures would tell me, and I'm honest about it, I'm honest with God, I'm honest with others, I see this area of my life where I'm a jerk, where I've got too much pride, or I've been dishonest with the Lord, or done something that dishonors the Lord, if I, just, if I confess those things to God, he'll cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Yes, that is what God's word says. That's not what I'm telling you, that's what God is saying to you. If you confess those sins, and I know so often as we discussed last week, sin and just the reality of sin is something that we've tried to push aside, and when we try and diminish sin or act as if it doesn't exist or ignore it or do any of those types of things that much of the world would rather the church do or try to convince us that we should do, we ultimately diminish the mercy and the grace of Christ. Because we diminish the opportunity to be cleansed of all unrighteousness. This is what John wanted the church to know. That Jesus came to do that. But if you are inquisitive, and I know at least a couple of you are, more than likely more than a couple, you might ask yourself, how is it that Jesus can cleanse us? How can I have confidence that Jesus has cleansed me? How can I know that? It's been, as I meet with people, this is a regular question over the years that has come up. How do I know that I'm a Christian? Or how do I know that I am saved? How do I, I want to have a confidence in that. I want to have assurance of that. Well, John gives us the answer to that question in chapter 2. He begins to. Um, And the answer will come in the form of this idea that supersedes really everything that he's about to say, there's essentially two tests to that. Are you obedient and do you love? Those are the two things that he tells us will come from someone who has been cleansed. So let's pray and ask Jesus to help us see that through his word this morning. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word preserved for us so that we might know you, be strengthened by it, be encouraged by it. Be assured by it. I pray that we would be able to sing in our hearts even this morning that old hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, that we may sing and say those words with confidence. Would you help that to be so? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the beginning of chapter 2 in 1 John, again, this letter written to churches uh, that would have been distributed to local churches, sort of sent around for the church to be encouraged. And John was addressing uh, a, a few challenges that had come into the church. I'll explain a little bit more or pick back up on that in a little bit in a few moments. But essentially, there's these false teachers that have sort of crept into the church and trying to lead the church astray. And the primary thing that they're arguing or trying to say to the church is the Jesus that is of the Bible that we know that he didn't come like that, that he was not who he said he was. And they tried to uh, convince the church of this other way of living, which was a lie. And so John is combating that. So he begins in, verse, or in chapter 2, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 2. And the first thing we see there, he says, my little children. I emphasize that. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. But I emphasize that just because it's helpful for me to know, it's helpful for my heart to know, just the love that John has. John is an old man. Again, he has died or he has lived. All of the other disciples have already passed on. He is the last living of the 12 disciples that walked with Jesus. He's very old, and so he's writing to the church. And again, many he might have known, but more than likely, most of these people he wouldn't have known, but he knows them as people he loves because they are his brothers and sisters in Christ. And he writes to them again like a grandfather might to his family. My little children, people, you who I love. I'm writing these things to you. I'm writing all that I'm about to say and have said so that you may not sin. I'm writing these things that you might not sin. Again, he's just addressed sin, and he's given us uh, clarity on how is it that we can be cleansed of our sin. And so he recognizes that sin is a real issue. Again, the false teachers that had crept into the church, they had tried to essentially lead the church astray in one of two ways. One, saying that your sins don't matter. It doesn't matter how you live. Your flesh is always going to be evil, and it cannot be holy. Their teaching sort of was this idea that you cannot be cleansed of that. And so you might as well just do whatever you want to do and just wait for Jesus to come back, and then he'll fix everything then. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the idea that he, that this group was teaching. And so he's saying, no, I'm writing these things to you so that you might not sin. Um, of course, then John quickly recognizes the reality, but we will sin. <laughs> As any pastor knows, we wish, I wish that sin wasn't an issue that I had to deal with personally, and I wish it wasn't an issue that you had to deal with and that we had to deal with with one another in our own hearts, but the reality is, is that we do. And so he says, but, at the end of verse 1, but if anyone does sin, there's hope. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate with the Father. One of my sons, and I won't tell you which one because I don't want to throw him under the bus too bad, but he got a speeding ticket. And uh, it wasn't super recent, but it's, it's, it's at least within memory. And, and so we went before the court, our great judge here, Melissa, and went down there. And um, as a good father, I went with him, and I stood beside him as an advocate just to let the judge know that, yeah, he's a little bit of a knucklehead, but I was too, and, and uh, it'll be all right, and I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that he does everything that you ask him to do so that we can make sure we don't have to pay money, more money on insurance. That's all I'm really here for. I come as an advocate to protect my pocketbook. That's what I'm really interested here, okay? But I'm there, in a sense, as an advocate for my son, all right? But in reality, I wasn't, I'm not a great advocate for my son before a judge because, I regret to inform you, I've had to stand before a judge myself for that same offense, for speeding, long ago, all right? Long ago. But that is something I've dealt with in my past, and so I'm not really as much of an, an advocate as, as, as Jesus is here, but 
That was sort of what I was after. How much greater of an advocate do we have in Jesus Christ who never would stand before the judge, before God the Father, and rightly be condemned because he had no sin. There was no sin to be judged. And so John tells us, I wish that you wouldn't sin, but here is some good news. If you do sin, you have an advocate before God, an advocate who will stand beside you and claim you as his And so your sins that should condemn you and should cause God to say, I can no longer be with you and and, and just eternal separation from him, you have an advocate. Some of you, let me just give you a pass. You might have not ever considered that you have an advocate before God in Jesus. And you need to just spend the rest of the time ignoring everything else that I say and consider that and let that sink into your soul. That is such good news, friends. Such good news. We have an advocate before a holy God. God who would be right to condemn sin, who would be just to condemn us in our sinfulness. All of that We have a Savior who goes and stands before him and says, this one is mine. What good news is that? How can we be sure that we have an advocate who can stand before the Father? How do we know that that is true for us? Well, John continues in verse 2 and explains theologically why this is good news and why this is the truth. He's our advocate because, verse 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the world. So we have an advocate who stands before God on our behalf, and he is our advocate because of what he has done. Propitiation. I know that's another big word. I used a lot of big words last week. I don't intend to do that as often, but this word is right here in the scripture, so we have to deal with this one. He is the propitiation for our sins. That word, the definition of propitiation, if you want to write this down, this is the one time you might use that little note card that you get in the handouts, but if you want to write that down, propitiation means the the just satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. That's what that means. Jesus is the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. We've got to get this right in our minds. See, we worship God, and he is worthy of being worshiped because he is holy and just. just. I just described our local judge, and if we all knew that our local earthly judge was unfair and un, uh, unjust and sort of just did whatever he wanted to do, really self-serving, always just kind of looking out for what he wanted and not considering and not fair and all those sorts of things, we would uh, more than likely vote him out or do whatever we needed to do to have that earthly judge removed. How much more is God himself He must be just and holy if he is God. Because he is God, part of his attributes of who he is is that he is a holy and just God. He's worthy of our worship because he is holy and because he is perfectly just. Because of those two things, sin and God cannot be reconciled easily. God must deal with sin. Because of his justice, he must 
rightly condemn sin. That's why we say so often that God would be just to condemn me in my sinfulness. He would not be unjust if he did that. That would not be unjust of him, but he is just and he is holy. And so because of those things, the sin of the world had to be dealt with. Well, John tells us that we have an advocate who stands before God and he can be our advocate because he rightly satisfied God's wrath against sin. He is the propitiation for our sins. He could be an advocate for us because as we talked about last week, he is not like us. He is perfectly holy. He was sinless. That's who Jesus was. He was the acceptable sacrifice when he laid down his life on the cross for you and for me. He could do that because he was sinless and the perfect sacrifice, as it says, for the sins of the world. This means that when we have put our faith in Jesus, we often hear this illustration used. If you're standing before God and get to the pearly gates, and there's always the jokes, and those are terrible theology, by the way, but, you know, it's kind of funny to think about that. And, but we're, we're before God, and, 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 and why would he accept you? Why are you welcomed into eternity with him and into his presence? And the reason is not anything that we have done or could do, but the reason is, is, is solely because we have a Savior, Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of God, and he says to the Father, He's mine. She's mine. He is our advocate. And he has paid once and for all the penalty for sins. We have in our justice system the idea of double jeopardy or that there is no double jeopardy. And if you haven't taken civics class recently, it's totally okay. Basically what that means is you can't be tried twice for the same crime. So if you've been acquitted or convicted on one crime, you can't go and be retried again for that. That idea of our human justice system is rooted in the justice of God, that God has once and for all punished sin for all time, as it says, yes, even for the sins of the world when he punished Jesus. He is the propitiation for our sins and the sins of the world. All sin for all time was dealt with. God's wrath was poured upon Jesus Christ for us so that he would be our advocate. Again, If you have not considered the depth of Jesus' love for you, that he is your advocate and would take on God's wrath for the sins of the world to cleanse you of that unrighteousness so that he could welcome you into God's family, just pause, please, and spend the rest of just bow your head and I won't even think you're asleep. I'll just know that the Holy Spirit is dealing with you and you're having a conversation with God in a good way. What a beautiful thing to know that we have an advocate. Well, John continues, again, this idea of trying to understand how is it that we know that we are saved. And so we see that we have this advocate for us who is the propitiation for our sins. He says in verse 3, well, let me tell you how you know that you have come to know him. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. We have an advocate in Jesus, and we know that we have that advocate. We know that we have been secured by Jesus. We know, if we know, then we will obey. In my youth, there was this great band, DC Talk. Some of you remember them, Christian hip-hop. 
We make fun of them big time today, but it's, hey, they were greatness. I can't tell you how many tapes I, or those were things, anyway. <laughs> so, but they began one of their songs in this way, a quote from an author, Brennan Manning, from his book, Ragamuffin Gospel, and it says this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And they go on to talk about their walk with Jesus. If we know this Jesus, we will obey. Again, there were people in these churches that John was writing to who were claiming to know Jesus, but they intentionally were saying that their lives did not need to reflect Jesus at all, and they were trying to convince others that it didn't matter how they lived. It didn't matter what you did, just if you just know Jesus and you know that he has laid down his life for you, that's it. Well, there is an obedience that if we truly understand that we have this advocate, if we know Jesus, if we know the real Jesus like John knew Jesus, then obedience would follow. See, one of the ways that we are assured that we have been cleansed of our sins and our unrighteousness and made righteous is that we re- realize we have been justified or declared righteous by God, we do that, we know that as we obey his commandments. Unfortunately, obedience has gotten a little bit of a bad rap. It's often wrapped up in this idea, well, obedience is legalism. We don't like legalism, and it's rightfully so. We don't like legalism. But obedience is not legalism. Obedience is is the denial of self in the sense that we don't look to please every one of our actions, but we recognize the one who bought our life, and we desire to be obedient to him. Obedience isn't legalism because it comes after cleansing. Again, look at the order. I just spent however many minutes, John, looking at those first two verses that talk about what Jesus has done, that he has cleansed us of our unrighteousness. It's him who did the work. Legalism is this attempt to cleanse ourselves or to prove that we have cleansed ourselves by some efforts or actions to make ourselves look righteous. But when we have been declared righteous by God through the work of Jesus, then obedience overflows. It's not legalism. There's a difference there. It's about the order. I just want you to imagine, this will help, I hope, in a little ways. Also get you ready for lunch. I've got a few raw eggs here. I just want you to just take those down. Just swallow three or four raw eggs. Just drink them down like Rocky. Some of the bodybuilders in the room are like, yep, that's what we do every day. I don't know, they they probably don't do that anymore. That'd be really dumb. But anyway, that's what Rocky did. Then I want you to take this, this cup of flour got a cup of flour and just, just drink that down. Your mouth is very cakey right now. Now here's a little bit of goodness. I got two cups of sugar for you. Drink down this two cups of sugar. Do your best to not go into cardiac arrest. But just drink that down. And this is how we're going to make sure that everything goes smooth. I got a stick of butter. Just... <laughs> Just the stick of butter. You feeling good right now? Feeling full? That would be disgusting. Just like 
kind of feels like sometimes legalism is. Now, a lot of you know that you take those things that I just mentioned and you mix them up in a bowl, and I give you one more ingredient, a little bit of chocolate, put that in the oven for about 20 minutes or so, I don't know. (laughs) And you'll have one of God's greatest inventions, a chocolate chip cookie. Sweetness. I'll plow through a line of chocolate chip cookies like nobody's business. I love them. Obedience is not legalism. Legalism is when we get things out of order and we think that if we do that, then I can be declared righteous. Obedience is the overflow of the sweetness of Jesus who says, I have cleansed you of all of your unrighteousness through my work on the cross. And John says to the church, if we know that Jesus, if we understand that kind of love from him, obedience to his commands, what he has called us to, will overflow. Which leads to my third point. Obedience is the outworking of abiding. Look as we continue here. Verse three, he said, and by this we know that we have, we have come to know him, that's Jesus, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I love just how straightforward he is. I referenced David Garrett last time, last, in the first service. He was here, I just said, he's kind of like my friend David Garrett. If you don't know David Garrett, he'll tell you like it is, all right? You just can ask him a question, he's gonna be real straightforward. John here is like, if you say you know him, you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. Don't get mad at me, that's God's word, all right? You're a liar if you try to say you know Jesus and don't keep his commandments. But whoever, verse five, keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him, again, that we have this union with Christ. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, that he is Jesus. Whoever abides. See, obedience is an outworking of abiding in Jesus. This constant reflection and focus on our relationship with Jesus, on what Jesus has done for me. See, I... I, if you, if you see any, any obedience in my life, and I hope you do. Again, it's not legalism, but I hope you see a reflection of Jesus in the way that I live my life, in the way I interact with you, in the decisions that I make, in the way I handle my resources, in the way I raise my kids, the way I love my wife. All of those things are in obedience to Jesus, not to earn his favor, but because I have reflected on who he is and what he has done. And the calling of Jesus on my life is to just stay real close. And we can have great confidence that as John wrote these words, and he says, whoever says he abides in him, whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk like he walks, he's got to be thinking back to John 15, where he heard, again, directly from Jesus' mouth these words. If you've got your Bibles, flip back over to the beginning of the New Testament, John 15, verses 1 through 12. I don't have enough time. This would be a whole nother sermon. But I'm just going to read these words because I know that John would have these words in mind as he wrote 1 John that we're looking at this morning. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that, he does, that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. This is Jesus speaking directly to his disciples. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep his commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. John says, and he's thinking of Jesus' words here, that Jesus told us, if we claim to know Jesus, if we have been cleansed of our unrighteousness, verse 7 of John 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus wanted his disciples to bear much fruit, to bear much fruit as they went out into the world and to proclaim his goodness and his love and his message to the world. And the way they were going to do that is if they abided in him, they stayed close. And that abiding led to bearing much fruit. And here, back in 1 John, he says that whoever abides in Jesus will walk in the way that he walked, will look like Jesus. Obedience will come. Obedience to the ways and the commands of Jesus will overflow out of a heart that is abiding in him. The distractions that the false teachers were taking to this church and laying at this church were leading them away from their focus on Jesus and abiding in him and staying close to Jesus. It's a different problem that we sometimes have, I think, in our church and really in our culture and context is we're so distracted by all of the other things that we stop, we, we, we fail to abide, to stay close to Jesus. This is, by the way, why we've been encouraging you and exhorting you to get that little book that we've got out there in the cafe. By the way, we're not making money off selling books. It's just we're just trying to help you create a discipline of spending time with Jesus so that you might abide in him. And in this Advent season, we found that sometimes people actually will pause a little bit more regularly to spend that time in the mornings or in the evenings considering the ways of Jesus and looking to his word, abiding in Jesus, spending time with him. That will lead to obedience. So if you've asked yourself or you found yourself perhaps dealing with some distractions and feeling pulled away from obedience and walking with Jesus, if you felt like, I'm not sure my life is really reflecting Jesus very well, let me just encourage you, the first step is get with Jesus. You're here, praise God, that is a great step. Spend time this afternoon, this evening, spend time tomorrow morning, spend time with Jesus, abide in him, remember that he is the propitiation for your sins. Remember that he gave his life for you. Consider those things. And not just flippantly, but spend some time meditating on those words and those truths. Abide and watch, I believe. I can just testify to you in my own life that where there has been a lack of obedience and where there seems to be distance in my heart from Jesus and his ways, it's not because Jesus changed or ever moved. It's because I'm not abiding in him. I'm not abiding in his love. I'm not spending time with him. I'm not focused on him. I'm not remembering what he has done for me. Remember. 
That is John's word to us. If you want to be sure, if you want to know if you are with Jesus, if you are walking with him, then abide in his word and keep his commandments. I read through verse 12 of John 15 because I wanted us to hear Jesus' commandment that said, this is my commandment that you love one another. If the first test for us of whether we are in Christ and we are walking with Jesus and that we can have confidence that we have been cleansed of our unrighteousness is obedience to his word, then the second test is that we love. Do we love like Jesus does? Do we love one another? Look at verse 7 in 1 John chapter 2. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At that time, or at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Here again, John, just really straightforward. If you say you're in the light, which is a reference to walking with Christ, and you hate your brother, then you still walk in darkness. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In 1 John, he uses the word love 24 times. There's 105 verses in the book of 1 John, 24 times. 24 of those verses include the word love. I'm not great at this, but Matt tells me that's almost 25%. Almost 25% of this book is a reference to love and to loving as Christ has loved us. And so if we look at the first test as obedience, this new commandment that he has given to us is to love. Now, we have to ask, as we read that, and I'm moving very quickly here because I realize where we're at on time. But we have to ask ourselves, as he says, is this a new commandment or is it an old commandment? Which one is it, John? We might ask. Well, it's just a reflection on the first commandment. All the way back in the Old Testament, the reason that John says it's not a new commandment is because in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The Israelites knew this as the Shema. This is the first commandment. This is what God's people were told to do. Just remember this. And this was one commandment that was given to them. Love God. Now, Jesus comes on the scene, and as we heard there in John chapter 15, and John would have remembered this, he told him, I give you this commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. We're to love one another. And so Jesus took that old commandment that was in reference to our vertical relationship with God, and he says, here's how you will know and I will know that you love God. Your love for God will be displayed in how you love one another. That's how we can tell and how we can have a confidence in this, is how do we love one another? Jesus gave in John 13 these words. This is how they will know you are my disciples, that you have, and you can fill in the blanks, love for one another. Love was the illustration and the demonstration of someone who was walking with Christ. We are to love one another. We think about that, and perhaps as I use the word love, as John uses the word love over and over again, you might be thinking to yourself, well, what is love? What does that look like? Maybe you're thinking about your relationship with your spouse or your friends or your family or just anyone. What does that look like? Well, 
love is something that expects nothing in return. If you love someone, you love them and you expect nothing in return. It gives and it expects nothing in return. This is proven through Christ's example for us. What is his example? Did he love our sinfulness? Was he real, just, yeah, things are cool, you just keep doing however you want to do that? No. Did he love the way that we ignored him and disobeyed all of his commandments? No. And he loved us anyway. He loved us, we could say in some ways, in spite of ourselves. He loved us unconditionally. And when I say unconditionally, yes, that's an unconditional in terms of sort of timeline, but really what that means is he loves us without condition. There is no condition that we had to get right through that obedience. If we put that first, that love didn't come out of a response to our obedience. The love was first. He loved us unconditionally. And if we are to love like he loves, then we are to love others in a way in spite of themselves, in spite of what they do, in spite of those things, especially, as God says here, in the body of Christ, within this body, this family that he has called us to. See, love says, I love you in spite of yourself. You can hear me right now because our media team does an awesome job of keeping my microphone on, especially those of you that are with us online. I hope you're still hanging out. We're almost done, I promise. And, uh, but you can do all that because my brother Craig is one of our media team, he's in the back room and he's kind of helping make sure that that happens this morning. But Craig is a Colts fan. (laughs) Now that might not mean a lot to all of you, but to some of you, you will know that Craig, I said secretly in the first hour, but it's really not so secretly, he is, he's wishing for my, my, demise this evening he, he's 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 right now hoping that my evening doesn't go that well they play God in America's team tonight and so <laughs> and yet in spite of this kind of rift that's between us right now that Craig doesn't really like me and wants my evening to go terribly I know he still loves me and I still love him I love him in spite of his inability to get on the right side That's what love is. I love Craig in spite of himself, and he loves me in spite of myself. This is where we are, first of all, our culture has gotten so off track. And sadly, just as John had to deal with things that were out in the world and this teaching that had crept into the church, this is where we see this creeping in to the church, not just this church, but all across the world. See, right now, the world says, I'll love you if you are like me. I'll love you if you see the world the way I see the world and that you should as well. I'll love you if you believe what I believe. That's what the world teaches. I'll only love you if you agree with everything, if we're completely on the same page and we're completely unified in all things. If not, I'll hate you and I'll call you evil. That's what'll happen. I don't know if anybody else has noticed that. If you haven't, I just want to go wherever you have been. Because it's all I see. Hatred, condemning, people not living and loving as Christ would call. For those of us who are in Christ, we have been given a different way. 
See, Jesus, I want you to think about Jesus' love for you. Jesus loved you before it was possible for you to look like him. It was impossible in your sinfulness before he came and laid down his life for you, for you to reflect his image, to be filled with his spirit and look like him. And he loved you anyway. Jesus loved you when the only lens that you could see the world through was a lens of selfishness and all you cared about was yourself. And he loved you then. Jesus loved you when you, like Peter, denied him, rejected him and his message. And he loved you anyway. And so if we're going to love like Jesus, we must recognize that our love for one another is a love and an understanding that we are united by one thing, and that is the graciousness of God, his mercy towards us in our sinfulness to love us unconditionally. You ask yourself, well, but what what about the evil and and, and people who who are doing all these terrible things? I can assure you that when Jesus laid down his life on the cross, he came face to face with every amount of evil that you think you see right now. A government that oppressed him, a people who rejected him, they were his own people, and nailed him to the cross, and he did that willingly because of his love for you, his love for me. He saw it all. And so if we are going to respond to a world that is dark and broken We have to love one another as Christ has loved us. We don't say that there is no sin. We don't say that there isn't disobedience. We don't say that the world is all great. We don't deny all of those things. But what we do is we confront that with the message and the hope of Christ, which is a message of love. And we show the world this is where the beauty of the church comes in, friends. I want you to look around this room. Look to your left and right right now. You don't have to look at me. I don't know if you've picked up on this, but there's no one else like you in this room. And the world that sees us loving one another as Christ has loved us, sees us unified, so just strengthened, like an unbreakable unity in Christ, it's confounding to the world. They don't understand. And that message of love and the unity that is experienced, what John is telling us is that will reflect Jesus to a world that desperately needs us. By this, they will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Our worship team is going to come up. They're going to lead us in a song that if you've been around our church for a little while has become a prayer for me, is a prayer for us. And I just want to invite all of us to spend these last moments together in prayer through this song. As they lead us, just consider this. As you hear these words or sing these words with them, consider this for a moment. God's word says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. God's word says that if you say you love God, but you don't obey him, you're a liar. God's word says that if you say you walk in the light of Christ, and you have hate for another person that's just like you, God's word says you're a liar. That's the truth. That's a a firm reality. But it also says that if you confess your sin, 
you will be cleansed. You will be declared righteous. It also says that if you say you love God and you obey his commands, that you are in Christ, you have union with Christ, that when God looks at you, he doesn't look at you in your sinfulness, but he sees you in the same way that he sees his holy son. Just imagine that. That's what it says. It says if you say you walk in the light and you love one another, the promise there is you will not stumble. I think so often, again, when we think of obedience and love, we're tempted to believe a lie that says, well, I'm never gonna get it right, so why even try? Or we say, if I love, I'm gonna get hurt. I just wanna invite you this morning as we sing these words, depending on Jesus, abiding in Jesus. Obedience, striving to walk with Christ will always lead to goodness in your life. You seeing him. And if you love like Jesus is loved, you will not stumble. Take Jesus at his word. You will not stumble. He'll hold you up. So as they lead us, let this song be our prayer together to abide in Christ and walk with him.